Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the New Zealand Initiative, and today we are going to be talking electricity, supercritical electricity, and the potential for geothermal, deep geothermal, to provide an awful lot more energy than we have so far been able to get from our geothermal sector. Geothermal energy to date has been excellent. We've been having it run here since the 1950s, second place in the world to have commercial geothermal electricity generation. New tech is coming on stream slowly, or at least under development, that will allow tapping supercritical heats at much deeper temperatures, allowing for an awful lot more energy. With me today, we have Andreas Heuser, who is Managing Director at Castalia. He's done a fair bit of work on this. About two weeks ago, their report, commissioned by GNS Science, looked at the potential for supercritical geothermal in New Zealand. It's an area that's interested me for at least a couple of years. Uh, I've been following summaries of the work going on in the United States from Eli Dorado, who's sort of a tech economist who follows sort of all, all of the latest in tech as it affects econ and, and vice versa. And he'd been doing some really nice work looking at geothermal expansion based on new drilling tech in the United States that's come out of oil and gas exploration and then fracking. And then more recently, Works in Progress had a very nice essay reviewing the state of play in the United States. And in the middle of all that, our GNS Science has commissioned some really excellent looking work. And I'm really happy to be able to chat today with its author. Andreas, welcome. Thanks, Eric. Please be here. So how did this come about? GNS has been working on supercritical geothermal for how long since you got involved? I've been involved for about a year. And before that, their next generation supercritical team, it's a big team at GNS, involves scientists and technical people, engineers, and they're based up in Topol and here in, in Wellington. And they asked me to tell them how we could help them quantify the value of supercritical geothermal. And yeah, we came up with some a way that I think is quite cool to have done that. And the, the result is this report, which has just released. Well, that's great because normally with this kind of thing, you'd expect some engineering consultancy report that would do kind of a normal engineer's thing and not worry so much about whether it's going to be economically viable or how it responds to prices. Tell us more about the approach that you came to on evaluating the extent of economically feasible supercritical geothermal. Sure. So supercritical geothermal is basically accessing deeper and hotter fluids at about six kilometre depth for New Zealand. And the science is basically settled and there are some technical challenges to, to get it to full commercial scale. So there's a technology readiness scale from one to nine and it's currently at about three or four and it needs to get to nine to be commercially viable. So there's a bit of work to do. And what we found was in the New Zealand landscape, there's a gap because all of the policy agencies that are looking at generation capacity and how where we're going to get future electricity generation from had not taken into account additional geothermal resources. And we really didn't know what is the economic value of this once these technical challenges are solved. And yeah, that's what our project did. First thing we did was we worked out, well, how long is it going to take before this is ready at commercial scale? Those technical challenges are, are solved. And once those are solved, how much would be economically rational to build in the New Zealand electricity system thereafter? We found that it could be ready as early as 2037, which seems like a long way away, but in the scale of how long it takes to develop new technologies and especially commercial scale electricity generation plants that are novel, it's not that far away. And we found that from that point, 2037, 
2,000 megawatts of capacity would be built, which is about two Huntley power stations. So quite a lot of generation capacity would be economic to build. And how does that compare to the scale of electrification that folks like the Climate Commission and others have been talking about as being needed if we have a fairly comprehensive transition from thermal generation and fossil fuels and transport over into electrification? So just give us a sense of like, what's the total generating capacity in the country now? And what has the government been figuring necessary capacity will be somewhere by 2050-ish? Right, so I think Transpower are probably the best people to look at for that. They say that currently there's probably around 9.5 gigawatts, so let's call that 9,500 megawatts. And by 2050, they're predicting that around 22 gigawatts, so 22,000 megawatts of capacity will be needed. Mm -hmm. So that's just projecting out electricity demand, and that's from population growth, increased electrification, EVs, charging, and so on, and some industry shifting to electrification. Okay, so that's about another thirteen or 14,000 gigawatts that'll have to come on stream by... 13,000 megawatts uh, that'll have to come on stream by 2050, and you're saying this would be probably about two or 2,000 megawatts, yep. two, two gigawatts of yep. that capacity. That's not small, and it's been kind of left out of all the modeling. That's right, yeah. And I mean, it kind of makes sense that it's been left out because the Climate Change Commission and their modelling, they're not required to, well, they're actually explicitly prohibited from considering technologies that aren't available or reasonably sort of foreseeable to be available. Yeah, it makes for good conservative forecasts, but it also misses some opportunities, and maybe we'll get back to that later. Now, something that I think is obvious for economists, but might not otherwise be, when you're talking about economically feasible at that point of being around two gigawatts, if there were a lot more reliance on electricity and power prices went up, the system flexes, right? So that would mean that more supercritical geothermal would be viable. Exactly, and there's plenty of it. So it's fairly conservative, but GNS's work has, has uncovered that there's about 30,000 gigawatt hours, which is about three quarters of New Zealand's current electricity demand. So the potential is yeah. for about three quarters of our current demand to be met by supercritical geothermal if you tapped every well. Well, I guess the number of wells is endogenous too, right? So the stuff from Eli Dorado and then the other bits and works in progress is pointing to tech that's under development in the U.S. for really deeper drilling. So when you're talking about six kilometers, that'd be constrained around the volcanic field and existing fields. If you can drill deeper, well, eventually, no matter where you are in the country, you're going to hit heat. So in the U.S., they're looking at 20 kilometers depth. Here, I don't think you'd have to go anywhere near that for most parts of the country. Yeah, and so looking at the top of volcanic zone in particular, six kilometers, and that's only on the land where that, that's not protected. So that's not a national park or far, regional forest park. Yeah, those constraints can really matter for regular geothermal. I'm not sure that they matter quite as much for supercritical geothermal if you're planning to drill to those much deeper depths anyway, because normal geothermal, there's a lot more potential there, but it's really constrained by resource consenting, landowners, only some land has shallow geothermal reservoirs, and a lot of those get tied up in hot springs and thermal vents and other areas that have cultural significance that make it difficult to fully exploit them for electricity generation because you'll annoy a lot of people. If you're tapping energy that's six kilometers deep or 10 kilometers deep, it's really not going to be affecting any of the systems that create hot springs or geysers or anything that people might care about. 
Right, but you do have to stick a power plant on the top. You do have, have to stick a power plant on the top. <laughs> have transmission lines coming from it. So, yeah, look, I think they're completely correct to just look at the the unprotected areas. And as I said, it's it's oh. abundant. So yep. three quarters of our current demand could be met from supercritical. And in addition to that, there are other renewable resources which are very cheap as well. So, yeah, I guess for further context on that, Quays, which is one of the companies that's doing this exploratory drilling in the US, they're trying to do, I had a column on this, riffing on your report and some of the other stuff I'd been reading on it. It was in Newsroom a couple of weeks ago. Kays is trying to use this millimeter wave technology with a gyrotron for the deep drilling. And they are hoping, or well, they're targeting by 2028, they want to have the first supercritical well at the site of an existing conventional coal plant or thermal plant, just wherever that plant is, drill at that spot and then swap out the coal fire boiler for a geothermal boiler and use all of the rest of the existing tech. You don't need new transmission lines, the rest of it. It's an awful lot more flexible when you can just pick a site first rather than being constrained by where the heat fields are, depending on how much extra depth you need to choose that site rather than another one and the costs of going to depth. Right, yeah. In, in New Zealand, we don't really have that issue because the existing conventional geothermal is in the total volcanic yep. zone and significant transmission assets sit there right as there. well. So, yeah. Yep. It is neat, too, seeing your discussion in the paper. And, of course, I encourage people to go and find it on Castalia's website. Or, no, it's on it's on GNS's website. Yeah, GNS Next Generation, and it's in the latest updates. Yeah. yeah. I can, I'll can. i post, look, I'll post it on our website and, as well. And we'll, <laughs> we'll put it up on the, on the page for the podcast along with the link to my column on it. But there's going to be a lot of waste heat that comes off of any of these generation plants, and that waste heat can be put to other purposes. You talked about perhaps it being useful for milk drying, perhaps it being useful for making wood pellets. So there are biofuel initiatives that take wood that's been harvested, dry it into pellets, and then use the pellets for thermal generation in places where you can't easily electrify and it works. So it's it's not a it releases the carbon that was in the tree originally, so it's a neutral cycle in that way. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's yeah, the focus of the report is its value for the electricity system, and it has significant value, and it means that we don't have to build mega projects like Lake Onslow. You know, assuming we, we solve the technical challenges that make supercritical viable, it means we don't have to build mega projects and don't need to overbuild wind and solar generation as well and have expensive batteries that sit alongside those. So, you know, it, it's a really, really great opportunity for, for the electricity sector. But like you say, there are some additional uses for all that heat and it could decarbonize industry. So milk processing was the example that we, we took. There, there's already a milk processing plant in the Topo Volcanic Zone owned by Miraka, which is a Maori-owned processing firm that uses geothermal energy to dry uh, milk to milk powder and taking that as, as a model. We did a thought experiment. What if you brought all of the milk on the North Island to Topol and had a geothermal powered milk drying plant? And you know, there's a we found there's enough energy to do that. And it would be quite neat in that because the milk production season is sort of inversely correlated with when electricity demand is high in New Zealand, so in winter when the cows have dried off, or most of them, we have high electricity demand. So you could sort of pair an electricity generator with a milk processing plant and, and use the same energy and swap it out into the milk processing plant in the high season, in the spring and summer, yeah. and then in winter use the heat to generate electricity. It's a fun thought experiment, but it makes me think back to just the 
the good system that we've got that would encourage us figuring out which of those kinds of thought experiments turn viable in the long run, right? So we've got an electricity network that's competitive. Anybody can sell power into the grid, go into the half hourly auctions. If you can make a buck selling power into the system, you can go ahead and do it. So if the tech proves up and is viable, then people will be able to use it to sell into the grid. If the tech bears up for drilling to deeper depths, then if it makes sense to truck milk to a good geothermal site, people might do that. You have to bear road user charges for more trucking. If it makes sense instead to drill closer to where existing milk drying plants are, then you could do it that way too, right? The appropriate outcome gets discovered by the process so long as you've got the underlying institutions right. And we've got an emissions trading scheme that penalizes emissions. You have to pay for every ton that you emit. We've got an electricity sector that's neutral across modes of generation. At least so far, we might end up getting into spots. You talked about need for overbuild. There are other scenarios that you can get into where you might have problems if you have over-reliance on solar, but geothermal would have less of that. Yeah, that's right. It's basically available all of the time. Maybe we assume a 95% capacity factor. So that's saying it's generating 95% of the time. It's not dependent on when the wind is blowing or the sun's shining. And because it is so reliable, it has a particular advantage in the generation stack compared to, say, wind or solar. And what was interesting about our approach is we took... TransPower, which is the system operator, yep. the grid system operator, we took their own standards for security of supply. So they, they set standards that new generation has to meet this particular security standard so that the lights don't go out, basically. And because geothermal is located on the North Island, and that's where all the demand is going to grow, or most of it, yep. and we used their North Island winter capacity security standard as a sort of modeling constraint and then basically used the same model that TransPower would use to work out which generator would be economic and yep. the, the merit order of generation. And in doing so, found that there, you know, there's a significant role for, for geothermal, and that's how we got to this 2,000 megawatts number, and that's 2,000 megawatts in a world where fossil generation is prohibited or for whatever reason is ceases. And if fossil fuel generation is permitted, so that's gas peaking plants, then it's about 1,300, 1,400 megawatts. Yep. So that's a neat feature yeah. of it too, right? Because if you maintain flexibility in the generation system and rely on the emissions trading scheme to find the lowest cost ways of abating emissions, well, fossil fuel peaking can be a really efficient way of getting the last few megawatts when you need it on a cold winter night. If you ban it, then your choices are a lot worse. Normally, you're going to have to have a lot of overbuild in other areas. This is an overbuild a little bit in geothermal, but that will suck less than trying to overbuild in a lot of other areas, at least on this modeling. That's right, or use expensive batteries, which are not ideal when you've got lesser cost options. And we found that using supercritical would get that 2000 megawatts of, of capacity and you'd still have significant wind and solar built, just that they would perform a slightly different role. They'd be, yeah. they're the cheapest to operate and they'd be Wind would be used when it's needed, but supercritical would provide a sort of intermediate load in the, in the, the middle of the load curve. 
Nice. And presumably, we're going to learn a lot more about the tech well before 2030, especially if Kays is hoping to have something operational by 2028 in the U.S. We'll be following developments over there pretty closely at the same time as scientists here are working on it. Might start getting some earlier reads on whether tech hurdles here will be harder to get over or whether they get solved elsewhere first. In that kind of case, you could see it potentially contributing towards our dry year problem, right? Because if we're not restricted to the Taupo volcanic zone and you're not really constrained in where you can drill because you just drill a little bit deeper to get to the hot stuff, you just sink more bores. Right, yeah. I mean, that's the K's idea. Yeah, Yeah, it's certainly attractive. It's kind of seems to be a fantastic solution if it works. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, there are lots of other ones that are under development. There is one of the ones in the work in progress piece. They're talking about the equivalent of shooting shotgun pellets at the bedrock to keep drilling deeper. They're ball bearings that they were using. Lots of different tech that's under development and you don't need any particular one of them to pan out. You need one of them to be able to reach those depths or a different kind of generation tech. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I mean, we've got this advantage, type of volcanic zone, it's 6Ks from from the surface. We've got world-leading geologists and scientists that have worked on this since the 1950s. Wairiki plant was the second in the world to connect to the grid. So, you know, we've really had a fantastic advantage and hopefully the lessons that come out of the New Zealand experience here can be taken to the world. Now, you talked a bit about the need for fast-track consenting processes to be able to hit the kind of 2037 date. What's actually needed there, and why aren't techs like K's being trialed here rather than in the U.S.? Like, our heat is easier to get than heat in the U.S. Why aren't they trying it here instead of there? I don't know about K's, but, you know, the government recently has shown willingness to grant or to ease the resource consenting pathway for renewable energy, but did not include geothermal in that. So it's solar, wind and uh, hydro projects have an easier time under the RMA. There's a recent change. Like, I don't know why, why well, other technologies, it, but I mean, I think the, we, we came up with this 2037 yeah. timeframe based on, you know, this is new technology. We looked at the fracking sector, we looked at solar PV, we looked at offshore, well, we looked at wind, and we looked at the history of Wairaki to come up with, with that time frame. So with additional investment and with some really focused attention from private sector players and, and the government continuing this role of under its next generation geothermal project and then tight consenting timeframes, we, we sort of got that down to a year. We looked at you know, some of the consenting timeframes for recent geothermal projects have added a year to those being realized and we yeah so we assume that that's reduced because Mm -hmm. there is policy alignment the the government gets in behind and supports the development of this technology and yeah that's where our 2037 deadline comes from so in that you had the consenting mainly working in parallel to the scientific development and the engineering tweaking to make it all work out that still left you with about a year's worth of consenting after the tech had been sorted, right? Is there any reason that it can't be fully in parallel? Well, I suppose it probably could. I'm not a resource consent lawyer, <laughs> thank goodness. Well, so, I, I meant less uh, yeah. on a law side and more, no Crampton, you idiot. We can't possibly know whether it's safe to do X until we've solved engineering challenge Y. Right, yeah. So I, I think that, you know, this, there is a bit of sequencing that you need to... You, you need to have certainty about like, well, what you're actually applying a consent to and which parties will be affected because, you know, 
most of it's yeah. You know, there's some public land, there's private land, but you know there there is some there are externalities involved here. So I think you know there is a reasonable amount of time that needs to go into the that consenting process. The government's been doing an awful lot of work towards getting towards a net zero electricity system. I still think it's a little misguided to try and get all of the emissions out of the electricity system. The last couple of percent are really expensive. But when they're modeling these kinds of pathways, you could make the conservative case that they shouldn't be looking at new and innovative tech. But what are we missing out on when they are prescribing paths that basically require that none of this new tech pans out? Right. So they do kind of have a legislative mandate not to consider technology that's that, that I'm not blaming yeah, the commission yeah. for this I'm <laughs> talking about the entire apparatus which yeah. includes the institutional structure yeah. they work in yeah so they do push the boat out a bit with some technology like I've done work for MBIE on hydrogen but it, you know I think how relevant is that compared to something like this which I think is you know a fantastic opportunity and so obviously has great potential and yeah, you know, I, th- I think in our climate policy and, like you say, the policy apparatus, it's really been, you know, there was a professor that has been quite influential in recent years in, in New Zealand policy circles uh, called Mariana Mazzucato, who promoted this kind of mission economy idea. And there's a bunch of money spent on that, and she consulted, and really promoting this idea that policymakers could get together with the private sector and kind of pick the pathway and the mission, you know, the route of the mission. And so instead of the mission, emergent solutions like this supercritical geothermal potential need to be assisted. And I guess we can assist these emergent technologies emerging through our policy mechanisms as well. So, you know, complex problems like, like climate, there are so many millions of actors in the economy and a kind of coordinating mechanism like the ETS really should be prioritized rather than, like you said, trying to pick a winner, I guess, from the center. Yeah. So GNS is kind of picking a winner in the research that they're that they're backing to try and get someplace. But that's a little bit different from saying, henceforth, we're going to ban this one kind of tech because we think that if we rely on it, then there's going to be stranded assets and a whole pile of other stuff because we're the central government and we know better than anybody else. This is fairly different. That's right. I mean, you know, it's the government promoting pure scientific research. It's high-risk stuff. There's a public good element to it. You know, the gains from this research can't necessarily yet be captured by a private party per se. So, you know, it makes sense that they are doing this work. And, yeah, like history is sort of littered with these examples of, in climate especially, where these kind of ideas have failed. So the Energie vendor, I think we had a German, I've got German heritage, but we had a German official out here lecturing us on our climate policy when um, that NRG vendor, having just been in September in, in Germany for a few weeks, is a complete disaster, well, total failure. So the listeners might remember prior podcasts that we've had here on the German windmills policy. I think it's when uh, Matt Burgess was with us and he would have been chatting with Oliver Hartwich about it. Um, if we can find the link to that one, we'll dig it back up. But Matt had written some reports on it for us. Uh, I guess the more recent problem in Germany was they're deciding to turn off their nuclear power plants. Oops. Yep. All right. So you've shown that supercritical geothermal could be pretty important on the path to net zero 2050 if electrification is going to have a big deal to do with that that there are an important set of technical challenges that need to be overcome yet. The science is still progressing. GNS is working on it. Uh, Kiwi scientists are working on it. There's a lot of work going on it abroad as well. It will pan out somewhere, likely, and if it doesn't, then other techs are coming through. 
just from a government policy perspective, now that we've got an incoming government, what should they know about this? I understand that they're looking at fast-track consenting for a broader set of critical things. I had to laugh a little bit earlier when you talked about fast-track consenting for solar because it's still being... They still aren't allowed to build a solar plant on a paddock that has sheep running under it because it's precious agricultural land. So I I don't think we've taken fast-track consenting seriously enough yet. But what else would an incoming government need to know? Well, I think that this is a fantastic opportunity that our modelling suggests even if it's double the cost of conventional, it would still have similar numbers of megawatts built, so 2,000 or 1,300 in a fossil-permitted scenario, and that you know that these scientists are doing great work and that they're continuing to do that work and these technical challenges have a significant payoff if solved and i think it's about you know letting these emergent solutions emerge over time in our electricity grid which has private sector generators and the mixed ownership model companies as well so i think it's just about being aware of it and helping to assist on the regulatory pathway so that it can emerge as soon as possible okay. Yeah, I guess that's part of a broader lesson, right? So if you're trying to prescribe a set of things that will have access to fast-track consenting, you're probably going to miss out on stuff that needs to get added to the list. And you might want to make sure that's fairly flexible rather than rigid. Exactly. Great stuff. Andreas, I was delighted to see that you've been working on this. I've been interested in the area for a while. I've been wondering why we aren't doing more to tap the super volcano to bleed its energy so that it's less likely to blow up the whole country when it finally lets go, maybe in the next millennium, maybe in the next 10,000 years. When it goes, it's going to be real bad. If we can suck that energy out and put it to productive use rather than blow up the country and possibly cause an ice age, that's so much the better. And it's great to see that it's looking like it could be economically viable. Yeah, there's a nice note to end on there. Eric, but yeah, no, it was, uh, th- thanks very much for the invitation and it was a great project to work on. Thank you. And thank you listeners. Tune in to us next time. <laughs>